Hello and welcome to the Forms of Care Project podcast series. My name is Amy Thomas. We will be digging into ideas around medical treatment at the end of life and talking to a team of medical anthropologists who have been researching this area. The project is a collaboration between the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the Open University, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. In this episode, we will explore the idea of action and inaction in a medical setting, why language is so important, and how anthropology can help us uncover new meanings. I'm Simon Cohn. I'm based at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I've been researching and interested in what we call medical anthropology for many years now, looking at a whole range of different conditions and different situations where the role of anthropology really can provide perhaps different insight into classic issues around health and illness. I'm Erica Borkstrom. I am a lecturer in medical anthropology and end-of-life care at The Open University, and I have been researching palliative and end-of-life care for the last 10 years. My name is Annelieke Driesen. I'm an assistant professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I've been interested in issues to do with health and illness, particularly dementia and end-of-life care. And in this project, I've been the ethnographer who's been doing most of the ethnography with the palliative care teams. The Forms of Care project is a, a project funded by one of the UKRI funding councils called the Economic and Social Research Council. Its key kind of focus is looking at end of life and palliative care with a particular kind of theoretical approach that's trying to ensure that what gets incorporated in our research are not just the most obvious things that are often recorded in terms of how care is delivered, that is, you know, what people do and what people say, but to some extent try and capture the the value and the meaning of when people decide not to do something or even not to say anything. And to recognise that very often these become very central to the kind of care that's delivered, especially for people who are so vulnerable and approaching the end of their life. The Forms of Care project had its genesis focusing around the concept of non-intervention or or when not doing comes about. I've been researching things to do with death and dying probably since uh, my master's studies. After my PhD, I had been going to different policy events that were discussing choice and future care and how how to improve patient care and end-of-life care in the UK. And it was at one of those events that someone told me about their pacemaker and the realization that at some point they're going to have to turn that pacemaker off so that they can die more naturally without it. And that really struck me as how there's these different interventions that we have within medicine that play around with life and death and how they have to be sometimes undone towards the end of life. And around the same time, there was a lot of public discussion in the UK around a document called the Liverpool Care Pathway, which was designed initially to help support care professionals in the care they provide to people that were in their last few days of life. So it gave them prompts on what to do and also suggestions on the types of things they don't necessarily need to do as someone is dying and and to like prompt them to review medication. It was designed to improve care of the dying, but there was actually a lot of negative media press around the use of the tool with concerns around it leading to neglect or negligence and this idea that people might be put on a pathway that might cause them to die. 
I was really interested in moments of doing or not doing that can influence how people think about palliative and end-of-life care. So as well as the pacemaker story, one that struck me was the fact that on occasions at least, both relatives and even staff members, in a sense, invent things to do to look after the person who's dying. All of us have this very strong feeling that we need to be doing something and that doing nothing itself is somehow negligent or doing nothing is somehow not caring. And it got me thinking more generally that actually the whole world of research tends to foreground things that it calls findings and observations and very rarely attends to the, all the other things that accompany those that tend to fall by the wayside or dismissed or marginalised as being not significant. So I suddenly realised as well as a very grounded, very real and important topic itself, there are some more general discussions and thoughts and reflections we might be able to have on situating this project in a broader context of how one researches health, illness and the provision of care. And this theme is apparent in other areas of medicine too. I had previously conducted research on dementia and everyday life in care homes and nursing homes in the Netherlands. Dementia and palliative care, as I see it, they share many concerns. So one example is the concern for not intervening as a form of care in later life. On the ward, doing nothing came to the fore as an important part of the care there as well. So withholding life-saving treatments in case of heart failure or infections, but also not forcing residents to eat, for instance, or take medications when they did not want to. Once we knew we really wanted to look at what non-intervention is or non-doing or not doing, we had to start thinking a little bit more about the, the clinical settings where that might come about. Through lots of discussions, we thought palliative and end-of-life care might enable us to see these things just because questions about withdrawing, withholding come up perhaps slightly more frequently in palliative and end-of-life care than, say, other areas of medicine. But how do you research something that is not classified as an action? Embedding themselves in an end-of-life care team in a London hospital, the researchers set out to understand how treatment is experienced at the end of life. They found that the use of language in the ward was instrumental in the patient experience and ultimately the treatment itself. We have sometimes struggled and teetered on the very edge of this whole debate about what constitutes doing and not doing or intervening and not intervening. And, and we're not philosophers and we're very aware that if you're not careful, it becomes just a sort of linguistic trick. I think ultimately our emphasis as sort of anthropologists who want to observe real life activities and settings is that it's not about us deciding whether something is an act of doing or not doing, but what we're most intrigued by is how other people make that distinction. Part of those early days was, for me anyway, um, a recognition that we weren't simply imposing this as a sort of theoretical or anthropological interest onto uh, the clinicians who spend all their days caring for people, but actually it really did seem to resonate with the tension they were aware of in their everyday work, that they were constantly aware that there were these tensions. And so precisely this distinction that we thought was our own discovery was something that they were very acutely aware of all the time, I think. We've very much witnessed that within our thinking about this, but also in what practitioners have told us, all these languages, they're so much part of their practice. So they, they do so many things. And we've been able to trace some of how these languages actually create realities. One of the ones we frequently talked about is when patients hear from their 
medical teams, there's nothing we can do for you anymore, or we've tried everything. And then palliative care emerged at this as this thing that came after everything, or that was nothing because that's you know the only thing you could still do for them. How these languages became part of, of patient experiences, but also how palliative care as a discipline positioned themselves very actively often against these phrases was part of what we observed. So one that comes to mind is the phrase active treatment, the idea of curative treatment, but it at the same time, it enacts end-of-life care as its other, where then that becomes a non-active and often these effects concerned the professionals in the sense that they foreclose certain possibilities for patients to choose another option, which could be no further treatment. The teams are very skilled in reflection. And I know that some of the things that when we were first talking to, to our, our clinical collaborators about why they might want to be involved in this was actually they wanted space to foster that team reflection and the individual reflection of, of their um, professionals. But I, I remember also thinking one of the things anthropology could bring to this is that we enabled to reflect back to them what they did, but actually they were so good at reflecting that sometimes we questioned uh, what were we bringing as anthropologists to this that was above and beyond or in addition to, say, to what they already knew. So it really challenges us to think about what are some of the contributions anthropology makes to studying end-of-life care. Anthropology and some of its related disciplines have a whole host of different kind of theoretical concerns in the past, debates about care and the fact that actually care is always about relationships between people. It's not simply something that's given from one person to another, but it's established through a kind of interrelationship. And that's certainly one of the things personally I think is um, really comes to the fore in an awful lot of the data that has been collected in this project. There's so much mutual interaction and give and take between whether it's the patient and the professional, the relatives and the patient and the professional, that actually seeing that as a dynamic process really, I think, speaks to quite a lot of the the core debates in anthropology going back decades and decades. It's just we're transferring it into very contemporary and actually quite a small, specific location in London. The way that people talk about things and the way they do things impacts or influences or shapes the way people experience stuff and also further how further things can be done. When we're thinking about non-intervention and the language sometimes used around not doing, doing neglect, withdrawing, all of that, and really just bringing some of that to the fore and playing around with the teams that we're working with about how the language they use might impact what they're doing or also how the language other specialties might use about palliative care, such as describing them as the nothing, might influence what gets done or not get done in terms of how they frame or talk about their service and how they react to things. As a team, we're not really looking to develop sort of a new language or better words of that, but really to make the consequences of certain words visible. And I guess neglect kind of gets framed as this not doing often, whereas uh, overtreatment gets framed as doing too much. And we're kind of operating at the intersections of that, showing, you know, where might these blur into one another and how can this also be productive for us to think about and reshifting those terms, I guess, to create new opportunities for people to act, in this case, um, professionals, but also patients. And that's us, right? So it's, it's everyone. We're always moving between the micro scale level of the field site and the field work itself. And these much more macro debates where we're sort of trying to engage with 
know, what is the role of a healthcare service now? Um, how does it uh, cope with the fact that there's increasing demand? Um, how does it cope with the fact that it's aware that more and more people will be dying and whether that should be medicalized or not? So although we don't draw on those explicitly, they clearly inform the kind of things that we focus on and hopefully what we focus on speaks back to them as well. But anthropology is not about finding the answers. It's not about right or wrong. It's about exploration and giving people the tools to understand the world in a different way. At the end of our lives, medical decisions have to be made. It's not easy. Maybe allowing space for new thinking, new meanings, new experiences can help us grapple with feelings about a treatment or even the concept of dying itself. We all have our ways and we, we have learned certain ways of thinking. And besides creating some sort of reflexivity about this, it also shows the ways that we take for granted as one of so many ways. And I think that's really a power of anthropology to dislodge this one way as the way and to really show it as part of this whole range. It holds open the fact that there's actually multiple possibilities and ways of seeing and doing, right? That we're, we're not trying to, uh, as anthropologists say, that there's a right or a wrong way of doing something. It's not a study that's looking at the barriers or facilitators of doing so many things, but actually it's holding space for multiplicity uh, in terms of doing thinking and, and being and, and giving also um, a chance to give voice for that, that multiplicity without necessarily giving one more weight than the other in how we value them. And us highlighting these these not doings as a form of care doesn't mean that we mean to construct the opposite as the opposite. So we're not trying to say that curative treatment is a bad, but what we are trying to do is to sort of open up uh, an analysis or a way of thinking about the consequences of these things for particular patients. Some of the staff reactions we've had, they have felt seen and valued and also validating some of their experiences with those tensions because we as outsiders have gone, yeah, this is what you are going through. And it's something that they live through and experience, but perhaps sometimes feel conflicted about because they're in a system that's constantly trying to optimize what they're doing. And we're going, actually, yeah, what you're doing is is valued. And, and, and of course, you're experiencing these tensions because of these different factors that, you know, they they are aware exists, but also maybe not in the same way that we can help them be aware about it. So it's been useful also for those individuals that have been involved in our study, not just this abstract way of how is anthropology useful in this field, but actually for those individuals who have collaborated as part of the study um, to, to see those types of things and also to be seen and to feel being seen. It's very tempting often, and certainly some of our colleagues, perhaps from other disciplines, will keep trying to find the solution to something or that there is a right way or wrong way as you say or that whether one should or shouldn't intervene at particular times and for particular cases but actually the thing that we zero in on is the tension itself sometimes the tension is what they call productive it can be actually very helpful and be you know drive the form of care that's done and other times I'm sure it is true that that tension isn't that helpful actually and it can be counterproductive but nevertheless, our role is not to decide on which is the right or wrong way, so much as record the way in which these oppositions actually come to the fore together, right? It's always a dynamic between the two. Um, and it, it's, it's a kind of always a misrepresentation just to push one as being the correct way or the only way that's present in the field. If you would like more information about the Forms of Care project, please visit www.lshtm.ac.uk forward slash forms of care. Thank you for listening and head to the website for more episodes.